Uh, you don't care about quality, no, you're no, just no, getting that's it. That's okay. That's, that's fine. It'll pick up fine. Uh, you got to Philadelphia in 52. Yeah. You got on the radio. What was what was a disc jockey in 52? There wasn't even a disc jockey at the radio station. There, there was like two guys at the station I worked at because it was an ABC affiliate, and he was, these were the, the tailing end days of radio as it was like television that we know nowadays, mostly network programming, and we had an announcer's lounge. We weren't even called anything but announcers. You would, you would uh, go in and give the station breaks in the weather. You would announce the farm hour, and then there was uh, oh a handful of guys, the morning man, was a disc jockey, and the late night guy was a disc jockey, and there was a female on at midnight. And what was going on in the music business? Were you conscious of it at all? Uh... It was the tail end of the big band era. We were playing, uh, let's see, 52 would have been Crosby and Sinatra and Perry Como, later Patti Page, I guess. Middle of the road yeah. music, they called it. And then uh, they started some kind of television program. In 1952, there was a show... Uh, there was a guy in Philadelphia who uh, had previously been at WIP, went over to WFI, and he did the 11 o'clock at night uh, music show right after maybe it was 11.05 or something after news, Bob Horn. It was called Bob Horn's Bandstand. And he was the premier disc jockey. He was on for Esslinger Beer. I think it was Esslinger, yeah. On radio. Yeah, on radio. And then sometime in early 1952, I can get you the date if it becomes necessary, uh, they commissioned him to go on television to to do on television what he did on radio, but what two other guys, actually Joe Grady and Ed Hurst, were doing on the 950 Club on WPEN. They played records, and kids came into the studio. It was owned by Sunray Drugstores, and they would gather in the studio and give their names and ages and dedicate songs and dance while the music was on. It was the hottest show, the 950 Club, it was called. They tried to hire these two guys, and they were unavailable. So they turned to their own guy, and they said, uh, Bob Horn, you go on in the afternoon, and you'll, you'll play records in musical films, Snader films, and we're going to give you a partner. And they gave him Lee Stewart, who was the Munts television salesman, who'd go on the radio and play portions of records in skeen-teen million commercials for 129.95 uh, Munts TVs. And uh, they were what I have characterized in other writings as the original odd couple. They didn't like each other. Neither wanted to be with the other. Lee was short and a, an unusual-looking little man, and Bob was a middle-aged, slightly overweight, normal-looking person, uh, and they just full-out hated each other. And they became this couple on television. And their assignment, I think, you know, as a matter of fact, I think, Joe, Bob was on alone for a while, sitting behind a desk and playing musical films, and then when they decided to do the kids in the studio thing, they would play musical films interspersed with records. Dizzy Gillespie was amongst the first guests. And it became evident in just a few days, the director's name, I believe, was Lee Davis, would take shots of the kids dancing while the musical films and records were on. It evolved into music and records on television. And that was the first one, by the way. Despite all of the others around, that was the first bandstand-style show. And Horn really built that into a oh, major show. It was massive. Uh, by He and Lee Stewart stayed together for 1952-3, I think they split in 54. They gave Lee uh, coffee time or the breakfast club or some other uh, cockamamie show to get him off because they, they, there was bad blood there. They didn't want to be together, and, and Bob wanted the show for himself. He uh, was not pleased at all to have a partner. And so in 54, he was doing it solo, and by then, 
the show has drawn 60-some-odd percent of the available audience in Philadelphia, 67% at its peak. It was huge. The record companies had discovered this? Yeah, and he was playing... He, at the same time, Freed had discovered rock and roll music in Cleveland and Akron and taken it to New York. Bob was discovering that if he played race music or rhythm and blues, uh, and he started, he was a jazz fan. He, As I say, he played Ushubi Doobie by uh, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, trying to think of some of the real early records. He was early in with the the Crows and the Penguins, uh, the Midnighters, all of the the beginning roots black artists uh, he was into, and the kids loved it. And the, and the record companies rallied around. It, they started realizing the impact of this guy. And yeah, and then you realized, too, there were guys like Dave Miller who ran Essex Records and had discovered people like uh, uh, Bill Haley and the Comets. I can't think of his other big star, but he was into... There were guys making records in little studios, like in garages, you know, and they set up their own companies, and there was this tremendous network of independent distributors so all of a sudden it wasn't controlled by Decca and Victor and uh, Capital was pretty big that was the biggest independent there was Columbia of course was there and all of a sudden there were skeen million little guys with their own labels how conscious were you of all this sitting in your booth and I was aware of it because the bandstand was so tremendous and I was doing the radio version of it. That what they would do is, because the television thing was extraordinarily popular, they would send Bob Horn in to do the first 10 or 15 minutes with me as we signed on at 2 o'clock. Then he'd split to do television. I would do three hours or four hours, what it was. He'd come back at 5.30 at night and say goodbye, and it was called The Bandstand, and we played none of the music that they were playing on television. Sure. A quick aside, they had sent This is WFI alone by the Philadelphia Inquirer. There's a prestigious AM station at 560 on the dial, only 5,000 watts, but it covered the world because it was low on the dial. And they had a music policy that excluded everything that was against the taste of the general manager or the publisher of the Inquirer, Mr. Annenberg. And they sent me to Pittsburgh to listen to Jay Michaels, who was the hottest thing in Pittsburgh. I sat in a hotel room for two or three days. I, could, I was an impersonator before I came, became an announcer, and I could do Jay Michaels better than he could by the time I went back to Philly. And uh, I think we even took his theme song, Georgie All's... Uh, uh, da, 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 whatever, the, whatever it was. Caravan or something. No, it's Caravan. I've forgotten the name of it. It doesn't matter. And uh, Harlem Nocturne. And he would speak in a sleepy drawl and he'd talk about lying here in my hammock and sipping my iced tea. And he would go on and he created these mind pictures for people... But he was playing the hottest records in the country. They wouldn't let me play Nat Cole because the man who ran the station hated Nat's music. So here I was doing the vestiges of the past. The show was not terribly successful. It was called The Bandstand. But I was very aware of what was happening up the hall on television. Of course, there are 50,000 guys in the music business who claim they were the only ones that would stop by and see you on the way to the television show. It's pretty true. <laughs> we got a lot of traffic because they were all there paying homage to the television entity and it was only 100 steps away. Now Horn got himself in some trouble. Yeah, he was uh, arrested for drunken driving and uh, alleged statutory rape which eventually he was uh, uh, cleared of. But the, uh, the, the real essence of what happened was that he had alienated himself from the station management most of the working personnel. He was uh, an extraordinarily bright, 
aggressive man, but he did not get along well with people, and he was a sitting duck. And the minute he stepped over the line, they dropped that axe on his head so fast. Now, you get the television show in uh, 56. Yeah. Uh, were you the logical one? Do you lobby for this? Uh, I knew that if I ever got the job, I would be extraordinarily fortunate because I owned a franchise then. Uh, I could go out and do the record hops and make tons of money, uh, seven nights a week. You couldn't make any money off television to speak of. Uh, they used the producer of the show, Tony Mamarella, as an interim host for a while while the, the noise quieted down. I can remember the day they brought me in. There was, was still murmurings about they might bring Bob back. And the day I walked in, the kids were picketing in the front of the uh, studio, uh, saying, bring Bob back, and so forth and so on. Uh, so long ago, I don't remember all the details, but enough of them came in and danced that it, it worked. I just had a different feeling of... Uh, the show. Did, did you slide easily into television? Was that, was that oh, I'd been in television since 1951. Back in Utica. Yeah, the first job I had was in radio, but I mean, that was 1947, but by 5051, I was quite actively engaged in television. You're, in 56, rock and roll starts. I'm sitting up in Boston just getting rolling. Elvis Presley has come along. What was the Philadelphia was this vital music scene? What was going on there? Well, there were you know there are two three independent record companies. There was Bernie Lowe, who was a piano player, and uh, Artie Singer, who was also a piano player. They all worked in the Paul Whiteman band. The former head of MGM Records, Arnold Maxim, was I think a bass player in the Whiteman band. These musicians were there, and when the bandstand gave birth to this national exposure. Everybody jumped into the record business, and Bernie started making what we call these broom closet masterpieces in a studio, you know, the size of this room. He'd go in and jam out a, a record all on one track and became a multimillionaire. Uh, the kids who were available to us, uh, Frankie Avalon, Fabian, the Orlans, uh, the well, Dovells. When, when you went national? All those uh, it was all happening, uh, was happening while we were there. Charlie Gracie was a big hit before we went. Uh, I mean, Bill Haley was, you know, jumped off from there. But I remember by the time it went national, the show had been copied in every major city. Of course, everybody was doing a local version. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, it, it became a, a huge music center, though it had always been, it was the birthplace of, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of Eddie Fisher and the Four Aces prior to that, to Marian Anderson. It had a wealthy... You know, yeah, a lot of singers came out of it. We also had a very... Uh, um, um, ethnic cultural center in South Philadelphia, not a wealthy area, very uh, low to middle class area. And one of the ways to escape that sort of atmosphere economically was to either become uh, a boxer or an entertainer or some kind of an athlete, instantaneous wealth. So you found an awful lot of uh, kids going into the entertainment business. Now you, it was you that convinced ABC to take this show on a national basis. They need some programming, right? Uh, I think probably my own enthusiasm in the end sold it, but prior to that, the station manager, George Kohler, and the boss of the station, the overall vice president, Roger Clip, had been making overtures to ABC to say, hey, look at this, this is a huge audience getter, why don't you stick it on the network? The reaction, of course, is always, who the heck would want to watch kids dancing the records from Philadelphia? And there's a letter in my office, you can see where I wrote them, and they sent me back, uh, don't call us, we'll call you sort of letter, 
And in my naivete, I thought this was enthusiasm on their part, so I canceled my vacation. I ran to New York with a kinescope. I said, give us a try. Put us on for a couple of weeks. It'll work. And they did try it at the end of August, 57. Now, when was the first indication that you had a monster on your hands? Within about 20 minutes after we went off the air. What happened? It was huge. The phones rang off the walls. Uh, it was just overwhelming. And it snuck in. ABC had done very little to promote it. Oh, there was a time filler. Uh, they, all they did was refurbish the set and send a lighting consultant down to say if we could brighten it up, make it a little, little more polished. We had an old canvas drop that had been scrounged up from somewhere that was like a, uh, an ancient music store with a trombone hanging on the wall and old 78 records. And what they had done was they took this thing and painted bandstand backward on it as if it were the window overlooking the street. And there was the podium, and that was all it was. When the network took it over, they put up a jazzy... Um, squared off, looked like a tic-tac-toe board with gold records on it. And the record business really discovered the show then? Yeah, it was extraordinarily uh, a concentration of power. The reason it was, was that the radio program directors and the disc jockeys who were on the air in, in afternoon drive time were being slaughtered. And it was not, I was not a well-loved person at that point, I, not, nothing personal, but everybody said, my God, how do you beat this? Because every kid in the country was watching the show, so as a result, every program director had his secretary watch the show and copy down what we played. We had no restricted playlist. It was entirely up to us as to what we wanted to play. And uh, whatever we played, everybody else had to play, because a kid would call a station in Keokuk and say, I heard it yesterday on the bandstand, how come you're not playing it? How do you feel through all this? I don't, overwhelmed, I think. I was just so extraordinarily naive and very young. I was 26, I think, at the time. I had a good educational background, but in those days, you got to remember, in the 50s, you know, I'm telling you, we were both around the same age. We weren't sophisticated in those days as a 26-year-old is today. I was just flabbergasted. People are they told, after the show had been on a while, they said, we're going to put a nighttime version on. I said, oh, terrific. I mean, if somebody told me today I had a nighttime television show, I'd jump out of my skin. In those days, I thought, well, isn't that nice? And they're offering you the world. Yeah. Guys coming in and swinging and doing anything to get records played. Well, it was at the point there where I, where I went into the music publishing, artist management, record pressing, every conceivable angle of music I could get into because the show I don't even remember the budget for the show Joe it was so low that there was no money for any of us we even had it uh, it was a kickback system with record companies where artists would come on and the record company would allegedly pay them for their performance we'd pay for about maybe half the people that were on the show out of our budget and when it ran out we said we'll book them if you'll pay them now, that wasn't illegal that wasn't nor was it immoral as a matter of fact, NBC had the Mormon Tabernacle Choir kick back to check at one point. So, you know, it was it was quite common. Uh, so the fact of the matter was the only way I could make any money was being in the music business. That's when I charged in and later got me into a lot of trouble. Now, you're sitting there with all these things happening and kids are becoming stars who are just dancing on the show, other people. Uh, any way you could get a handle on all this? Who was running it all for you? There were two of us. There was Tony Mamorella and myself. And we would turn up in the morning and we had seven ladies answering the mail the phones rang constantly 
the promotion men came in and out at will. We had no hours. They could be there all the time. We worked in a little tiny office with a partner's desk facing each other because that was all the room there was in the office. Literally, there was room for the two of us at the desk, about two feet on the side of it, and a bench that you could sit on. That was the way somebody would come in and sit to visit. You would sit within three feet of one another. We could reach out and touch all four walls. Did it, uh, did it make you nervous what, what an impact you could have on careers? No, never gave it a moment's thought. I was too busy with my own life trying to figure, what am I going to do? And I was still doing sometimes 14 record hops a week. I would do six or seven of them, and then I had other guys covering them, and we'd jump spot. I'd go in for a half a night and then move to the other spot, and then we'd cross in the middle of the night. And you know, it's it was, so funny. You're here you are, this national figure, and you're working all over Philadelphia. Well, you got to remember that we made 75 cents a head. I think the terrible irony was, and I'm, I'm very pleased with this, we used to take a, we'd buy rolls of quarters, and we'd give a quarterback and take the dollar and throw it in a 45 RPM record box. And dear Eddie McAdamy, he rest in peace, was uh, the guy who worked with me, and he, he was a profuse sweater. He would perspire all the time, and at the end of the night, the sweat would drip off the end of his tie, and it would end up in the box with the money. And we were just, the money was just coming in hand over fist. We'd take it, and we'd stick it in a spare bedroom. And my wife and I would take it out two, three weeks later and try to straighten these crumpled bills out. And there's the funny part. Here's a cash business. And we kept immaculate books. And it's the first time I ever had an accountant. And we reported that income. And years later, people said to me, you what? <laughs> well, there was no way in the world that anybody would know what came in. And the, and the books are sitting there forever. Where did you think you were going? Was it going to be indefinite with that show? Or? I was terrified because it kept looking like it'd be only a year or two, and I knew I had to make a killing. That's why I was racing so hard to get all the money I could. And I was extraordinary in my, uh, oh, sort of let my tentacles go into anything I could because I didn't want to let an opportunity go by. Did you like the music business? Did you like the music? Oh, I loved it. It was fascinating. What was so fascinating is you could say to someone, I got a story, uh, the manager of the Diamonds, here's a Canadian white group of good, harmonious singers. Nat Goodman comes into the studio, and I say, the kids are dancing to a thing that Chuck Willis recorded, C.C. Ryder. And it's a, they do a dance called the stroll, but that's the only one we got where they can line up like a Virginia reel and do this stroll and peel off down the middle. Um, this was 57, 56 thereabouts. I said, if we had another stroll record, you can have an automatic hit. He said, I'll have one for you next week. Bam, bam. He goes out and does a thing called a stroll, sent me the acetate. We stick it on the air, and it's a hit. This is where the guy in Dubuque says, where did that come from? Because you knew it would be a smash. Same thing with the, they were doing a sort of a, a combination of the cha-cha and the calypso. They called it the chalypso. So I, I commissioned a guy said, write a song called the chalypso. He did, and it, put it on the air, and it won. Uh, any, anybody you remember particularly talented that came on that show? I mean, that was so terrific. Oh, everybody, Joe. Yeah. It wasn't anybody who didn't come on the show except Presley and Ricky Nelson in those days. Every single human being that was in the record company, the record business, had to be there. I remember vividly uh, Tony Bennett. Here's a man, I mean, even in those days he was a legend, but Columbia Records under the uh, leadership of Mitch Miller had slipped behind a little bit in the new avant-garde music that was coming along with the kids. 
and Tony's trying to re-up and get his contract going, he would say, you got to put me on the bandstand. i got to get another hit while I'm renegotiating. Uh, that was how important it was. And we kept the bookings in a diary. And we had uh, two bookings a day. That's ten on that show, and then we do five, and then we have 15 acts a week we'd book. And one of the reasons we used so many Philadelphia acts was if somebody fell out and there was a snowstorm or a last-minute cancellation, we'd just pick up the phone and call somebody up from South Philadelphia and say, we need you this week or we need you this afternoon at 3.30. Did you try? Was there a problem with Presley? Was it the, that Tom Parker? I don't think we ever even asked. I mean, we just knew that Tom Parker wasn't going to let him perform. In those days, the scale was a concession from AFTRA for $155. This is an interesting point, too. Nobody in the music business belonged to the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. And they used this tool to organize the music industry. Because anybody who wanted to be on television then, any musician, any singer, had to join after that. It was a huge door opener for that union. That whole, that whole 50s period, the latter 50s and into the early 60s, was... Uh as you mentioned, the independents were kicking the hell out of the, uh, yeah. the majors by swinging and dealing and being aggressive and doing that. And Philadelphia was way out in front with a whole bunch of guys. I remember Bernie Lowe saying to me he had a chance to buy two masters. And it was a tremendous expense, $5,000 probably going to cost him. One was You Send Me, which he lost. He didn't get it. The Bahari Brothers, didn't they, didn't they get it? Sure, it was modern? Yep. Yeah. Modern. Saul and his brother got that one. And the other one was... Uh, Silhouettes with the rays. He got that one. But then the same within two days, for a cost of ten thousand dollars, he could have bought two masters. He got a, one. Such an exciting period. It could happen yeah. overnight. You get it and you find a record was breaking in, in Cleveland or Columbus and you charge in there and you find some guy who didn't have any wherewithal and you could lay a few dollars on him and take the master and give him a piece and the next day it would explode all over the country. You had so many who were almost like house acts, uh, Freddie Cannon and yeah. Frankie Avalon. Uh, All of the Philadelphians because of their availability. Uh, at that time, I, I was the, a 50% owner of Swan Records. It was Bernie Binnick, Tony, and I. And uh, we used our own acts. It was another thing that was looked upon as a conflict of interest in later life. I always found that amusing because... Uh, Lawrence Welk, even during through all the heyday of all this craziness going on with what is a conflict of interest, the biggest music publisher I knew, and I'm sure some of his copyrights were being used on his shows, but uh, we got uh, criticized for doing that. Well, we all got caught up in that in uh, early 1960 uh, with uh, the House Oversight Committee. Oh, lovely, yes. Yeah. It's not a not a period of great joy for me, that was for sure. What were your feelings then, that you were going to be able to go on and get through it? And no, I was really pretty sure it'd be over. I didn't think that, uh, well, I must have believed I could get through it, otherwise I yeah. wouldn't have. But it was very dark. I can remember having to go to the corner druggist telephone to call my lawyer because we knew the phones were tapped. Uh, the government agents did indeed break into my house. And uh, it was it it was probably the most disillusioning thing that I ever ran into because being raised in the fifties in the Eisenhower period, I didn't know that the government wasn't always straight and the good guys. They did things to me that made me realize that a tough bunch of cookies. Well, you took it on the chin. Uh, 
because you were so you know, much more prominent than that. Highly visible. Their greatest disappointment, Joe and me, was that I didn't just take money and play records. They were, ex again, it goes back to bookkeeping. In all the record companies we had, we had a budget to pay guys to play records, and we book kept it, and we showed it. Now, as soon as, and this is not to make it morally right, but the minute they saw that I was an entrepreneur and that I was the payer rather than the payee, these fellas who were politicians said, well, he's not that bad, which to me is rather odd. There's only one man in all of my life ever offered me money to play a record. He's going to give me 100 bucks to play his record. I have no idea who he was or what it was. I said, I'm sorry, that's, I don't do that. I was making over half a million dollars anyways. I didn't have to bother. Well, beyond that then... Then you get through the latter 50s and the early 60s, and things start to change a little bit, too. The music starts to change a little bit. Let's see. Uh, as we move into the early... Where do you want to go? Early 60s, there's some folk music, some yeah. Beach early, Boys. And early 60s is sort of a lethargic period yeah. of not a heck of a lot happening. We have the third generation of the teen idols are with us by then, and we've got Chubby Checker and Bobby Rydell and the Orlons and the Dovells, and that's the Philadelphia thing, and then Anka is... No, Anka has already uh, done his thing. And then, lo and behold, uh, the show, the bandstand, gets cut to an hour a week. And the well, music... Was the... Uh, was just the... It run its course as the day Well, show, the or? affiliates were tired of airing it, uh, uh, you know, and most station managers watched it with the music off, and it was terribly redundant, and they looked at it, and they said they don't want to see that anymore. Plus, they could make more money putting their own programming in. So they relegated it to Saturdays for an hour. And it's concurrent with that. There was a lot of music coming from California, the, the uh, surf music, beach music, not the beach music of the Virginias and Carolinas. And... Uh, we began to hear just the murmurings of England. My friend Bernie Binnick, who by then, along with Tony, had taken over Swan, came back with the first Beatle record, and he played it for me. And I said, I don't know what the heck you're so excited about. This is uh, highly derivative. It sounds like Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers and little Chuck Berry thrown in. I mean, what, why are they so excited over it? They said, well, they have the different look. And I looked at the picture, and I said, this is, you're, you're absolutely insane. This is... This is not anything that's going to fly. He said, play it on the Raider record. We did. Got a 73, and the kids said something about that. You know, they weren't terribly excited. We have a piece of film now that somebody saw later on where one of the kids rates a record, gives it. This is later on in the Beatle history. Thinks it's pretty good. And I say to him, well, what do you think they'll last? He says, oh, yeah, they'll be around a long time. I said, how long? He said, oh, a year or two. <laughs> now, were you... Uh was that all you were doing? Was the Saturday show? Were you doing a daily show in Philadelphia? Or? No, that was it. So I was just doing the Saturday show. No, and Where did you figure your life was going then? I had to either go to New York or California, and that's when we came to California. When, 64? Yeah, end of 63, 64. The show started shooting here in, uh, I think, uh, February, March of 64. And shortly after that, we got uh, Where the Action Is on the Air, which was a pilot for CBS. And uh, they didn't buy it, but ABC bought it as a strip. We were then heavy into English music. We were doing 100 or more concerts a year out on the road. And the old Caravan of Stars, it's another thing that we should touch on. Sure. That was the uh, forerunner of the concert business as we know it. What was the Caravan of Stars? Caravan of Stars was a bus filled with 15 or 16 acts and a band and the wardrobe, all enclosed in one bus, no amplification gear. We used whatever the house had. 
three, four years afterwards, we would drag a truck with us and begin to carry our own uh, sound gear. What gave you the idea to do this? Uh, I was partnered with Irvin Feld, who ended up owning the uh, the circus. He and his brother did the super shows, the black rhythm and blues shows that went out with Fats Domino and uh, Little Richard and Chuck and uh, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers and so forth. And he became the manager of Paul Anka. And the first tour we did, uh, I think, was Paul and Dwayne Eddy and Annette Funicello and a rather strange conglomeration of artists, black and white, and I learned the concert business from Mervyn. Was it an economic success? Oh, yeah. Well, in terms of those days, it was a huge success, but you get a laugh out of what, what the economics were. For a buck and a half, you'd get a four-hour concert in either a burlesque house or a roller rink or a deserted baseball stadium or an old vaudeville theater. There were no municipal auditoriums to speak of, but very few in the early days. And you'd, uh, the blacks would sit in the balcony or on the left or right-hand side of the downstairs stage, never together in the, in the southeast. We uh, ran an integrated show because of, uh, you know, Rhythm of Blues was so huge. But for a buck and a half, the highest paid person on the tour would be the male white teen idol. And he would get, if he was lucky, $1,500, $2,000 a week. Uh, my favorite story is the hiring of the Supremes, which we did as a favor because we wanted uh, uh, Brenda Holloway. And uh, Esther Edwards uh, made us take the three girl singers and uh, Diana's mother uh, as a favor, and we gave them $600 a week. Who was great out there? Anybody greater than someone else? Why you took the reactions uh, were all... the. The young male idols always got the big reaction because that was the thing, the screaming and the yelling and the tearing of buttons and weeping and crying that you've seen down through the ages with you know, all the idols. It hasn't changed since Sinatra and Rudy Valley. It's the same thing over and over again. It just depends who is there. If it's Whether it was Frankie Avalon or Paul Anka or Donny Osmond or one of the Cassidy boys or Prince or whatever, it's, it just seems to be an event that happens every couple of years. How'd you feel getting out on the road? You'd been this big television star, and now you're out there banging that one night. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I was very young. Uh, what years was this? We did that from 1958 until 1964 or three with a caravan. Then in 64 and on through, I guess almost 1980, we went into the concert business. We did one-nighters. Uh, I can. Uh, the prime example was when the English thing happened. Uh, Jack Hook, Tim Tormey, and I went to England to hire everything that had long hair, that had an English accent, and played music. Everything we bought, by the ton we bought it, and brought it back and shipped it out on tours. And this is uh, Herman's Hermits, the Zombies, them, uh, the Yardbirds. I mean, we had tours with the Yardbirds and Gary Lewis and the Playboys. I mean, odd combinations would crop up. We didn't, nobody knew what all of this was. And uh, the lo one of the last tours we had was with Tom Jones significant amount of trouble with Tom because the PTA in a lot of places didn't like his gyrations on the stage. He got, I think, we were up then to about $2,500, $2,800 a week for the star. And a year later, we were paying him $75,000 a night against 60% of the gross. In a year's time, that all changed because the Beatles went somewhere and charged $25,000 for one night. It's unheard of. Now, you were moving 
while you were doing all this entrepreneurial thing, you were moving all the way from the music business. You were not well, by then I, I had been removed from the music business. I'd been asked to cut the ties with everybody and say, you're either going to be in television or in music. So I just, I just but went to television. But even in television, you, had, you didn't have as much contact with the rest of the music business. No. Now, once you, once you, you lose your, your daily hands-on thing, but I think what really happened was the charts took over. I didn't have to know what was going to be a hit anymore because by then we were relegated to playing what was on the charts. I didn't have to see the promotion men. I didn't have to have my ears open and listening and say, God, that's a hit. Uh, that's when the fun disappeared from that end of it. And the fun for me went into how many things can I get into? Since I can't be in music, how many other things can I get into? But you always have kept music as a major part of your focus in your television and so on. Yeah, because... It, by one means or another. I mean, after the bandstand's heyday, there came Where the Action Is. The Saturday Night Show was before that. Swing in Country taught me about country music. I'd been a country disc jockey before that. Uh, the American Music Awards, the Academy of Country Music. I mean, there have been nine million different music-oriented things. And what was good was I knew a lot about television and a fair amount about music and the sensitivity of the artists and so forth. And to try to get them together was tough. I can remember trying to talk Chicago into doing television. Uh, it was the uh, sort of forerunner of that, uh, uh, what's the word I want to use, sort of uh, snob feel yes, that a lot of artists feel. Uh, you don't do television if, uh, if you're, and it's happened throughout the ages until tough times came and people needed the promotion. But I said to them one night in a meeting, it was sort of, it's a corporate sort of decision that's made. I said, yeah, how many one-nighters do you play? And they told me. Well, it's the average seating, they told me. I did a little quick arithmetic, and I said, you know, one night on television, you could reach more people than you reach in 10 years of your life out there on the road. And can you imagine how many people who vaguely know what Chicago is, who may have heard a record on the radio that might buy an album? They did it, and we put five albums on the chart concurrently. Did you ever conceive of an idea like music television, MTV? Well, that was the beginning of the bandstand, remember. The Snaders were music television. Uh, my, my personal opinion... Uh, well, let's see. Uh, that's not the answer to your question. No, I never thought of it. Weren't the, it was uh, one of the Rosens in Philadelphia was involved with a jukebox operation. Scopatone. Scopatone. Yeah. And uh, people were going to make these movies of bands yeah. playing and... Uh, I remember the first one I saw was on Sunset Boulevard, and they came out and said, let's go down to the bar and we'll show you what it was. It was a topless bar. And I had a hard time trying to concentrate on the jukebox. <laughs> but it was it, they were also not terribly interesting. It was straight performance footage, very much like the Snaders that were a long time before. The, uh, where do you think the visual marriage of music and television, or, or visuals and music can be? Is it, is it at its... Uh, has it reached a wall right now, or it can't be? I, I believe it has peaked. Uh, it'll be interesting to see by the time you write this up what's happened. Yes. But right this moment, the depths of, uh, of saturation of the marketplace is quite strong, and the audience is diminished by 35%. Uh, the MTV people have challenged Nielsen to say, you've made a mistake. Uh, whether they've made a mistake of 10 or 15%, I don't know, but... A drop like that in a year is terribly significant. It's interesting. Uh, I was involved with MTV when I was at cable back there. 
and they start making projections for the next five years. And, and this was a company we had just been through Atari, mm -hmm. video games. And I always had in the back of my mind that there's a little element of the video games here with this. We're dealing with an audience that is so volatile yeah. and can drop out. Well, what concerns me, Joe, and I, I don't know whether I want this printed or not, oh, but right. I think is uh, a kid can stand repeti repetition. An adult can't. But all of a sudden, to have 35% of your audience leave you, then maybe they can't take the repetition. And it's all over the place. You can yeah. see it. So it isn't just MTV. You can see it everywhere. And where's the fun? Where's the mind pictures? Now, people said this about television. But television isn't the same over and over again. There's a variety there. But how many times do you want to see Charlie Jones's video? And you know he's going to jump from here to there and go out of focus here, and the smoke pot will go off there, and the wall will fall, you know. Tell me, uh, with all the, the ventures you've been in and, uh, and the, the expansion of this company and all the things, have you ever been able to duplicate the feeling of when uh, when it exploded with you for the bandstand? Uh, no, because that was a personal thing. I was fronting that show, and, uh, and uh, you know, it was just extraordinary. It's so long ago, I barely even remember it because I was a child. Uh, I think if I'd been older and smarter and what have you, it would have made a deeper impression on me, but it's... It's, I have to be refreshed to be able to remember those days. I've got I to talk to friends of mine who are old, like Red Schwartz. Yes. Red has a better recollection of it than I do. And he'll say, remember the time, sometimes. His memory's phenomenal because it was so indelibly printed in his mind. It just came and went out of mind. Well, I always thought it was very heady as having achieved you know, some uh, visibility as a disc jockey, too, to to walk into these high schools and to walk into uh, and realize what an impact you were making yeah. on kids with this music. You know? Well, you know, I was always around the people that had their buttons torn off and all these screaming kids would be chasing them up the street and all. And a little bit of that rubs off on you. I can remember going to, uh, I think it was Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and signing 5,000 autographs from 9 o'clock in the morning till closing time at night in the middle of a snowstorm. People just turned up to get an autograph. It was really glamour, wasn't it, when you went to New York to do that Saturday night show? Yeah, yeah but it wasn't, it, it couldn't have been all that impressive because I don't long for it and I don't have any real fabulous recollections of it. It's it was, almost another life. It's almost like yeah. it was another life you led. Well, it was a quarter of a century ago. Yes, and... Uh, I'll tell you what my secret fantasy is, though. Someday, and it may come to pass is to have uh, the bandstand on five days a week again. I've always sort of kept that. People, when they've written other stories, he always talks, they'll say he talks about it as the Saturday edition of the bandstand, as if way back in the back of his mind he thinks it'll be back again. I really do, you know. Would you I, like to do it? Uh, for a little while, yeah. I don't, I, I'm getting a little too on in years to want to do it live every day or anything. But if I could, if I could do them on a weekend, yeah, sure. You still like to... Do you do anything, any of these uh, projects, work with uh, kids uh, like the bandstand did that you get you that close? You're doing pyramids and you're doing no. uh, bloopers. There's nothing to get you with a... That's, that's the roots. That's constant reminder. I mean, it's an extraordinary stroke of good luck to be thrust as an adult into that world every few weeks and get in there and hear what they're talking about. Did the memory get charged with that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with uh, some of those people? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think it's time for that. I'm, I'm working on the American Museum of Popular Music, concurrent with that. They're not competitive at all. 
I want to put something here on the West Coast where the ordinary people can go and the scholars can go and research and we can put all this film and tape and stuff in this pack rat life of mine where I've saved everything. I just can't keep handling it. We've got 20-some-odd thousand pieces of stuff now. And I've got to, as uh, part of my legacy, pass it on to some charitable thing. I've set the foundation up. Uh, I think the Hall of Fame is fabulous. I, I hope they settle on a place for it. Yes, they're talking Philadelphia, yeah. uh, Chicago, and some other places, Cleveland. Uh, by this time, by, by the time this thing hits, it'll yeah. have been somewhere. Isn't Naris also thinking of some museum or academy? Uh, the more, the merrier, yeah. because at least it means that everybody, uh, you know, isn't. Yeah. It's a miracle that I saved all this stuff because if I hadn't, yeah. it wouldn't be there because it was on its way to the trash bin when I grabbed most of it. And it's the biggest collection in the world now. Someday it'll have some value to people to be able to go and look at it all. And I've, I've now stretched it back into things that are non-rock. I mean, old musical films and big bands. Anything that anybody's got that they want taken care of, I said, send me your homeless, your sick, or whatever it is, you know. Who are, uh, just offhand, who are some of the unforgettable characters that cross your life in the music business? Uh, you, you want... Everyday names and famous people? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. I guess Chuck Berry is stand outstanding. Do uh, you need, you want the recollections of why? or? Yeah, if you, you know. Because he's always been very unpredictable, the same as Richard. There's two or three unpredictables. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, James Brown. Unpredictable in what sense? Uh, well, you never knew what sort of mood they were going to be in. Extraordinary musical geniuses, all of them. And like with a lot of terribly bright, creative people living on the hairy edge of uh, the moment, you never knew whether they are going to be happy, sad, show up at all, uh, be angry with you. I mean, you never know. And, and, that, and, that, and it goes on beyond that into today's people. Go Friday, uh, Friday or something. Next Friday. Yeah. How long? Just a week. We were going to take a cruise, and we decided to, decided I didn't want to be in a boat with a lot of millionaires that could be uh, captured for ransom. <laughs> we just uh, came back from India. We spent almost the really? month of January in India. <sighs> An amazing place. I. I but you got to get ready for that. I, mean, I don't gotta, think I could do that. It's uh, it is a very unusual experience. I bet. Very difficult. But wow all-time trips, but we, yeah. we got ourselves very psyched for it. We read a lot yeah. and uh, were ready for it and talked a lot with uh, with people and went to it. But it is, you know, to know there are 800 million people out there who don't know much about what we do, they won't care. It's like going to China. Have you been to China? Yeah. Yeah, we went to China about eight years ago and it was very mysterious then. It yeah. Was, uh, music and music. Well, ours is only a couple of years ago, but I, I you know, I, mm, that's... I told Don Rickles, uh, Rickles and Newhart, I was out with him the other night, I said, listen, you guys could last about 30 seconds there, <laughs> because if, if everything doesn't set right for Rickles, there's a lump in the mattress, he goes crazy. <laughs> I don't think I'd like yeah. to see all the poverty, that's all. No, there's poverty and there's dirt, and, there's, and they go along, they somehow get along, and they go do it, it's hard. Yeah. Anybody else that, that comes to mind? Managers, distributors, record company executives oh, who stood out. You, you knew them all. Uh, you know, I, I think of Ahmed Erdogan, or I think of Lou Chud, or I think of George Gold. Yeah. You know, uh, I think of all of those yeah. guys. I mean, yeah. 
George Goldner was an extraordinary guy. He was flamboyant, careless with his money, uh, a pioneer, a truly interesting man. Bernie Lowe I loved. I speak of him in the past tense. He's still alive. Um, he was a dear man. I think the terrible thing that hurt him more than anything else was when he sold his company. He didn't have anything to do. And I, I learned a lesson there very early. I'll tell you off the record someday of uh, just the down days with Bernie. It's, it just ruined his life when he gave up his business. Uh, I like Bob Marcucci. He was a colorful, interesting man. He's very, very imaginative, and he too was flamboyant. He created out of whole cloth two of the biggest teen idols that ever came down the pike. Hello? Yes? They screwed us out of it the last time. That's why I don't want to let it go this time. Just uh, another thing. Uh, somebody, uh, somebody just sent me a print on Jamboree. Sent me a tape. Oh. Now, how about Stop the tape. Oh, go ahead. Uh, do you? What I ask you is, how did the? What happened with that picture? How did we all get involved with that one? Milt Sabatsky and his partner, whom I still speak to today. Now, isn't it odd? I should remember the other man's name, Mark Snix. Eisenberg, not Eisenberg. Damn it. I've blown it. Somebody at Warner Brothers, I guess, I don't know how it got born, but they came to me, and, and, and Freed was making pictures in those days. So you want to make a rock and roll picture? And I said, yeah, man, this is the big time. Great. And so we put together, Bernie Lowe put 10,000 in it, Cy Singer, the corner druggist, uh, who was the bandstand father figure. He put ten into it. I put ten thousand into it. I can remember going to the bank and withdrawing the ten thousand dollars, putting in a check in my pocket, riding on the subway in the elevated train with my hand on the check for fear I'd lose it. Every dime I had in the world. And it was my idea to say, hey, let's get Robin Seymour, Joe Smith, this guy, and all the kingpins of all the major cities we can find and stick them in the movie. Heck, they're going to get on the air and talk about the fact they're in a movie. That'll help promote it. We'll put two kids from the bandstand into it. And by then we had gone on to national, so that helped. And the picture made some money. We got our money back. I got my 10000 back. I don't, I don't think we made a lot more than that. We will never, ever be nominated for Academy oh. Awards for that one. <laughs> it's, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine. The, the lead singer, the woman who played the lead, her voice was Connie Francis's voice. Yes. I think Frankie Avalon was in it. Fats was in it. Jerry Lee Lewis, I think, was in it. Yeah. There were a lot of big stars in that. Count picture. Basie. I was a weird, weird conglomeration. Were you, were you friendly, or did you have much to do with other disc jockeys, or did they just, uh, you know, resent the uh, the intrusion so much that you didn't? Did you ever have dialogue? In the in the early days, I had very little contact with disc jockeys other than Georgie Woods in Philadelphia. We worked hand in glove because he was in contact with the black world, and he would tip me as the things that his audience was into real early. But the rest of it was. Very standoffish. Everybody was very guarded. That changed three, four years later. Uh, it wasn't so bad, uh, like 59, 60 maybe, but 57 to 59 was rough. It was a this is the enemy, a guy on television who was killing, uh, and, and he was nothing but a discharge. He's one of us. How did this happen? It was a horrible, uh, horribly uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, well, it was very hard for us, as you, you know, you pointed out. It wasn't only Dubuque. It was in Boston and Chicago where we'd go to right. the... Why him? Yeah, and, you know? and, and we'd go to these record hops where we were making our bread and butter and nails. So we would, we would tape 
the sound on your show. We uh. just take the sound and, and knock off a, a dub or something like that so we could play the damn thing and get a record off. And sometimes we were playing dubs. I mean, we would, in those days, we didn't have any rules. Guy bring a hot thing in, we liked it, we'd stick it right on the air, off the acetate. Well, the toughest thing were the dances, you know, the, the strolls yeah. and, uh, and uh, all these other things. They were hard because everybody wanted to do those. Yeah, that was a fun period. Uh, everything go as you would want to do? Uh, nothing uh, you would change during that time at all? Or, yeah. Oh, I know. I wish I'd been uh, maybe a little better business-oriented. Uh, I would have, you know, I could have held on to the music publishing, which would have been worth skeenteen trillion dollars today. I don't have any regrets. No. But uh, Was that the most fun for you, that period? I think it was the most interesting because it was it would be like uh, going across the country in a wagon and arriving in California in the early days. That was what was going on. It was just any every opportunity. I mean, you and I walked into a bar. We found a great singer. Heck, we could record that singer and have it out next week in a network of distributors, and we might become overnight millionaires. It could never happen again. Well, that's terrific. Thank you. I got a good sense. That's wonderful.